Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. All right, grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts. We're going to woo-hoo, finish another series tonight, getting to the end of the year and got to get that done. So uh, we are going to cover chapter 25 through the end of the chapter, or end of the book, and try to get these last, really two main stories finished as we go through the book of Acts. Uh, that's chapter 25, Acts chapter 25, and we will go through the end of the book. Now, interestingly, this is probably one of the least familiar sections of the book of Acts because most studies that go through the book of Acts have the same problem we just had going through the book of Acts, which is we go nice and slow for the beginning and then we got to really rush through the end because we got to get done with the, with the book and, and we're kind of doing the same thing. That being said, the stories of the end of the book of Acts are much larger stories, and so it kind of lends to that sort of pacing as you go through anyway. You've got a large section here from about chapter 21, 22 through 26. That's just the trials that he went through, both from in front of the Jews and then in front of Felix and Festus and then Agrippa. And we'll talk about Festus and Agrippa tonight. Uh, and then you've got a two-chapter section of him heading to Rome. Uh, and so we'll, we'll kind of cover those uh, piece by piece as we go through. There are a couple of little details I want to slow down in and focus on because I think they give us some insight that maybe we don't think about often, uh, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. So what you have here at the... Uh, chapter 25, is that the Jews are still trying to kill Paul, which is pretty amazing considering how long he's been sitting in jail. Uh, if you look back at the end of chapter 24, verse 27, after two years had passed, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. So for two years... Paul's been in prison. The Jews have had Paul not in their midst. They've not had to worry about him. He is in a jail cell. It's not a problem that we have to deal with anymore. Yet when the new ruler comes in, Festus is now in charge. The Jews bring all the charges back up again, and they want to bring Paul back to court. And not really actually back to court. What they want to do is have Paul transferred from Caesarea back over to Jerusalem so that they can kill him on the way. So there's really nothing to do with justice here. They are wanting to use this as an opportunity to commit murder. And so they work kind of with Festus to try to figure out how they can make this happen. And Festus, wanting to also do the Jews a favor, just like Felix did by leaving Paul in jail for two years, he wants to make this work. And so he brings Paul out and says, hey, can we transfer you back over to Jerusalem so that they can bring you back on trial there since that's where the supposed crime had taken place. And it's interesting what Paul says there in verse 10 and 11. 
I am standing at Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as even yourself, you, you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accused me of, no one can give me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, I, I wonder what the motivation is here, because we're not really told a lot about what Paul's thinking. Why appeal to Caesar? And I wonder if there isn't, you know, he's been told he needs to go to Rome and that he will go to Rome. And I wonder if this isn't Paul, either through revelation or just through logic, putting this together. The easiest way for him to get to Rome is to appeal to Caesar because it doesn't look like he's going to get out of jail. Felix left him there to rot for two years. Festus clearly doesn't have his best intentions in mind. Staying in Caesarea isn't doing him any good, so appeal to Rome and get out of here. Uh, and so that, that's my best guess as far as what's going on in Paul's head in appealing to Caesar. He's not really in danger where he's at. He's stuck. He can't get out, but he's not in danger because he's a Roman citizen, and there's not really anything they can do to him uh, unless they can fully find him guilty according to Roman law, which they can't. There, he's, he's kind of in a holding pattern. So he appeals to Caesar, I think, knowing that he's not going to get a fair trial with what's going on. And King Agrippa and Bernice, his wife, are coming to town. Now, there are some family relations here between, King, uh, between Festus. I believe Festus's wife is related to Bernice, if I remember my, my genealogies correctly, which is very possible that I don't. So uh, Marshall's agreeing with me, so I feel pretty confident that, that I have it right. Uh, so we, we've got a family relation there. They're coming to town. Uh, King Agrippa is, is himself a, a ruler among the Romans, and so Festus basically says to King Agrippa, I want you to, to hear what's going on here. King Agrippa has some familiarity with Judaism, and it's mentioned several times in the story. Uh, and so because he's familiar with Judaism, he's going to know more about the accusations that Paul is, is under by the Jews. He knows, has more of an understanding of what's fair and not fair according to Jewish law. He wants King Agrippa to hear and to see what's going on. And one of the reasons you find him saying he wants to do this is because he doesn't have a clue what to send on the piece of paper with Paul. He, Paul's been accused, but they're really kind of a baseless accusation. Uh, the, the Jews that are accusing him can't get a straight story. There's no real crime that's been committed in what they're trying to say he's done. How do you send a man to Caesar without there being a legitimate reason to send a man to Caesar? Like that, who's going to look bad if he does that? Festus, really, Festus, you couldn't, you couldn't handle this? Like, this is your job. Handle it. Like, like he needs to have a reason this is above his pay grade. And so he's asking King Agrippa, with his expertise, to come up with an explanation as to why 
probably Paul's been kept in jail for two years and he's not been treated fairly as a Roman citizen. That's the issue at hand. And so King Agrippa and Bernice are happy to do it, and so they set up a, a, a chance for King Agrippa to try Paul or to hear the story and to make some judgment calls regarding what's going on. Now, what we find as we, we get into this, this is down in chapter 26. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, when all of this happens, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance that's involved with it. Uh, if you look here, this is back in chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 23. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. So there's a big to-do. I mean, dignitaries from another place are coming in. We've got to show them honor. They know what they're doing. This is a big deal. And then Festus gave the command. Uh, when Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. And Festus says, listen to this, King Agrippa and all men present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community, the whole thing, like every Jew, everywhere, all of them, they have appealed to me concerning him both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he's done nothing deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to your emperor, I decided to send him. So what I find interesting about that is that's not in the story. As far as we know, Festus hasn't really determined anything. Festus inherited a problem that he's done nothing about. Uh, he's not given Paul a fair trial. Uh, he's not really trying to, to figure out what's the right thing to do here. But he's basically laying this in the lap of King Agrippa, saying, I, you know, oh, great wise one, you'll know what to do because I, I can't figure out what to do here. Uh, so it's really kind of buttering up uh, Agrippa here. Paul, in his defense, says, I stand on trial because of the hope of what God promised to our ancestors. Now, what hope is that? The Messiah. And Paul's recognizing what's the problem here. He teaches the Messiah. His accusers do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, and that's really the problem. That's really the disagreement that's happening here. It has nothing to do with causing trouble in the temple. It has nothing to do with a riot he caused between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This has to do with whether you believe in what God promised to the ancestors or whether you don't. Paul's saying, I believe God, they don't. Paul retells the story of his conversion. This is there in chapter 26, verse 12 and following, and there's a, one little detail in here I want to I point out to you that's unique to this retelling of uh, his conversion story. You've got the same details. He's traveling to Damascus under the circumstances of being able to persecute Christians. Uh, while he's there, uh, he sees a light from, from the heavens brighter than the sun. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice speaking in Aramaic. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's where the other stories stop. Listen to this extra detail. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's that mean? 
Now, I know we all know, well, probably some of us know what a goad is. Some of us probably don't. But a goad is honestly, uh, it's a big, long, sharp stick. That, that, that's what it is. And if I'm a, an, a driving some oxen, or let's say I'm driving a donkey, and the donkey gets stubborn, and he's supposed to be pulling my till, and the donkey has stopped, and the donkey won't do what the donkey's supposed to do, that's when I pull off my goad. Big, long stick and I poke the donkey in the behind. Ideally, what's that going to do? Woo! You know, get that donkey going, right? That, that, that's, that, that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do with a goad. A goad makes him go. That, that's my simple way of remembering that. All right, so here's the problem. When you kick against the goads, if you've got a donkey who is especially stubborn, instead of going the way he's supposed to, he might instead kick against this nuisance, this sharp pointed stick that keeps hitting him in the behind. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're injuring yourself because what was a probably a firm poke has now become a piercing. Because the intention was not to jab it into the donkey, but if the donkey's kicking against the goad, the donkey is injuring itself. Now, that, that's a great image, but we need to understand what the image is saying. And, and it's not really explained. It's left for us to try to figure it out. And I, I might be wrong on this. This is my personal conclusion as to what Jesus means when he says, why are you kicking against the goads? Paul, or Saul at that time, was persecuting Christians. He, he was trying to stop Christianity. He was trying to stir up trouble against Christianity. He is refusing himself to see the truth. And what Jesus is saying is, you are being goaded, and instead of going the right direction toward the truth, that I think Paul was mentally and spiritually struggling with, is what these Christians believe true. It is the Messiah truly, this Jesus of Nazareth who was hung, hanging on the cross uh, just however long ago it was. He was struggling with whether he was willing to believe in Christianity. And his response to that was not to have an honest, internal, introspective conversation with himself. It was to kick against the goats. No, I cannot believe it. That is a dis I can't dismiss everything I've ever learned. I can't turn away from everything I've ever believed. I've been educated. I, I have perfect pedigree to be a, a, a superstar among Judaism. He had everything going for him, right? We learned that in other passages. He didn't want to give all that up. And so Jesus says, you know, you're being goaded, but you're kicking against it. You're being extra stubborn. Stop. Stop hurting yourself is the idea that Jesus gives him here. I, I find that interesting because I, I I find many of us in that same place. I, I can't tell you how many times I have watched as a preacher 
somebody that I've been studying with, they're, it's there attending worship with us, and it gets to the end of the sermon, and you're offering that invitation, and that person just, they're shifting in their seat, and you can tell they're uncomfortable. They, they, don't, they look down, they won't look up. They, they, they don't want to have any interaction with anybody around them because they're kicking against the goads. They know what is right. They, they're, they're pretty sure, at least, but they refused, they refused to do anything about it. They refused to make changes. They refused to be willing to go the right direction, even though they're getting poked by God in the behind in the right direction. And I think we have that with Paul. Paul's saying, you know, all of this, the, the reason Paul was willing to change like that is because now what he had been questioning, what he had been unsure about, what he had been being prodded about by God himself, there was no question anymore. That interaction with Jesus answered every concern he had. Uh, and and that, that's just a great picture of the way God does this kind of thing. He says in verse 22 down through in 23, to this very day I have had help from God. And I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and the Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, there's the bulk of the message that made all the Jews angry. He was teaching two things. One is, the Messiah has come. They didn't want to admit that because they're kicking against the goads too. And secondly, uh, this idea that he would open the door to the Gentiles. Jews didn't want that either. Paul represents every danger, every risk, every difficulty they have with Christianity. You want to know why they're still holding on to their anger and frustration with Paul two years later? Because they need him out of the picture. They need him gone. And so they are willing to fight and hold on to getting rid of this man, Paul. They definitely do not want him set free. And so they are willing to go and even murder a man on transfer from Caesarea back to Jerusalem if that's what it takes. But Paul gets up and gives this great defense. He tells his story. He, he tells the story in a way that Agrippa, familiar with the law, familiar even with the prophets, it says, that he would understand that what Paul is saying is a legitimate thing to believe. Now Festus at this point goes, you are insane. Much learning has clouded your mind. There is no way these things are true. Festus goes absolutely bonkers. About what Jesus or about what Paul is saying, and Paul says, "No, I'm perfectly in my right." And, and Agrippa knows it. Agrippa knows that these things are true. You look there. This is down in chapter 26, verse 24. Festus exclaims, "You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad." And Paul says, "I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus." On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. What king? Agrippa. The king knows about these matters. And I can speak boldly to him, for I am convinced 
that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And so Paul gives his teaching as to why you can believe in the Messiah, and I think this is the same sort of thing Paul would teach when he was in Athens and when he was in Corinth and when he was in all the other places. He would share with them what, the, what God had promised from the beginning and give them a reason to believe. Now, Agrippa is, as, as we sing sometimes, almost persuaded. Personally, I think that's a horrible translation of this. I don't think Agrippa is almost persuaded at all. Uh, I think what's really true is what he's saying is, I cannot be persuaded to become a Christian in such a short time. You think in such a short time you're going to convince me to be a Christian? Not, not meaning in such a short time I'm almost a Christian myself, which is the way it oftentimes gets, gets translated. Uh, you know, I, I think Agrippa is at least taking offense that Paul is including him in his uh, defense as if everything he is saying is true. Agrippa's going, hmm. I'm not on board with this. But it doesn't change the fact that Agrippa recognizes that what Paul is saying is not criminal. It might not be his cup of tea. It might not be what Agrippa is willing to adopt and do himself and become a Christian himself. It's not that he, he's not persuaded to be a Christian, but he is persuaded that that Paul is not guilty. And so he makes the statement that he would have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. But because he appealed to Caesar, he's got to move on to Caesar. Uh, and so I don't know what they wrote in their letter. Uh, I don't know what it is that, uh, that Agrippa added to it. Maybe it's just the fact that Festus and Agrippa are both like, we're not sure, you're going to have to see this for yourself. It makes Festus not look so singularly ignorant. Now, it's, it, you know, group ignorance. You know, several people don't know what's going on here. Uh, but that, you know, again, who knows? We don't know what's in the letter. We do know he's sent on, and we've got this really fantastic story here in chapter 27 and chapter 28 of him boarding a ship and being taken across the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's interesting from, in chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, there are details given to us names of exactly where they went, people who were involved in the trip. It gives very specific details here. Uh, so it, for an original reader, Theophilus, uh, the one who is verifying what is going on in Paul's court case, he can go verify, okay, he said uh, this name, well, let's call him in as a witness. Is this, did this really happen the way that, that you know, Luke wrote down that this happened? Uh, he's giving very detailed and, and I think purposefully specific events so that these things can be verified. Uh, the ship is in peril. Uh, the storm comes up, a northeaster. Uh, it comes up and it is uh, tearing the ship apart. And Paul, because of his belief in God, because of his faith in God's protection, is able to himself cause the ship itself to be saved. Uh, and so they crash. They end up landing on an island called Malta. 
And there on Malta, you've got Paul. They stay for a little while. Paul does some healings there. Uh, you've got the episode of him uh, reaching to put a log in the fire, and a snake jumps out and bites him on the hand. And the way I, the way I picture it is Paul's just like, huh, you know. And they're all like, he's going to die, and he doesn't die. And then they think he's like a god because he's, he's invincible. He can't die. Uh, but Paul does some amazing miracles there and, and teaching there even more importantly. Uh, he gets shipwrecked there uh, and so does, does that great miracle. He ends up soon after that, and, and again, I encourage you to go read the story because it really is a fascinating story, but uh, soon after that, he ends up in Rome there on house arrest. Uh, I, there's a lot of variation as to exactly how house arrest would work in a Roman imprisonment was there a guard that was living with him was he chained up while he was at the house but he could receive visitors uh, a lot of different uh, again I don't know all the specifics of that I do know he was allowed visitors I do know that typically speaking in a Roman imprisonment you were not fed three squares a day uh, the way you were fed was people would have to, you would have to have uh, patrons who would bring you food, who would take care of you and supply your need. And that's one of the reasons I think you see so many churches like Philippi that are sending money to Paul, uh, not because there is necessarily mission work to be done, although Paul does that everywhere he goes, uh, but because that was the only way for Paul to have food. It was the way to help Paul survive, is, is he had to have patrons who would send him food and help take care of him. It's interesting, when he gets to Rome, one of the first things Paul does is he meets with the Jews there. Uh, he, he wants to essentially head off the problem. And so it says, verse 17, after three days, this is chapter 28, verse 17, after three days, he called together the leader of the Jews, or the leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, although I've done nothing against our people, and done nothing against the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hand of the Romans. After they examined me, they wanted to release me, since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I have no charge to bring against my people. So he's letting them know, I'm not here to accuse you. I am here because my people have accused me. Okay, for this reason, I've asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Now, what's the hope of Israel that he's speaking of? Jesus. Uh, again, uh, just like we talked about in my sermon this morning, Paul could never get his mind off of Jesus. I hope you see that through this story. Everywhere he went, even at the risk of peril and rejection, he couldn't stop talking about Jesus. He didn't have to add that last statement in there, did he? He didn't have to say, I mean, he could have stopped with, so for this reason, I've asked to see you and speak to you. That could have been it, but he doesn't. He has to add in there something about Jesus. And so he throws in this statement about Jesus. Now, I love their response is this. We haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers have come or reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we want to hear what your views are. Because we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. Now, again, here, here's my question. 
if he hadn't added that statement in there about the hope of Israel, do you think they would have added in there the statement about, and we want to hear about this. Paul's always opening doors. Always. He's at least jiggling the handle to see if it's unlocked. Like, he, he's not going to let an opportunity go by. And I, that, that, to me, is such a great testament for you and me as to how we need to have conversations with people. That we need to be willing to put in, even if it's just a few words, but put in an answer that brings attention away from us and back to Jesus. Keith and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, about something I had said somewhere, but uh, we, were, he, we were asking about how is it that you can live in such a way that people will see your light uh, and glorify your Father in heaven, essentially. Good enough? Okay. So we were having this conversation, and I, I gave him this illustration. We had, when we were in Florida, we had sat down with a, with a, a gentleman, and uh, we were talking to them, and he found out that my wife and I had been married for 21 years. And what do you think is the first thing he asked? Same thing anybody gets asked if they've been married for probably 15 years or more. It is, well, what's the secret? Hey, how many of you have been asked that question? I mean, all of us. We, we get asked that question, okay? What's the secret? And I had two or three jokes run through my head immediately because that, that's what we normally do, right? It's like, well, just give her what she wants. So, you know, we find some way of, of playing it off and joking about it. And I, I had these, these jokes, like, run through my head, and then I thought, or I could say, and this is what I said, we just do it the way the Bible says to do it. That's it. That's, what I, that's the answer I went with. Now, it was interesting to watch his reaction to that. His reaction, he kind of double-taked because... He was expecting a joke. He kind of double-taked and went, that's probably the only right way to do it. I wouldn't have, you know, and it wasn't the right occasion, and, you know, that we don't live down there, but if we were to do that in our communities and our jobs and the interactions that we have with people every day, especially people that we interact with often, that makes a difference because it creates opportunities that won't be there if we joke everything off. Paul was willing to take the opportunity to put a nugget out there and to see what's received. Are we? Because it really is that simple. It's just finding that way to bring the attention back to God. Not in a arrogant way, not in a ha-ha, I'm holier than you kind of way, not in a look at me, I, I'm perfect kind of way. None of, you know, none of those things work. The goal is to bring the attention back to God. And that's what Paul does here. I am here because of the hope of Israel. You know, we, we want to hear more about that. And it opened up doors. Paul remained there for two years. Two years. It's interesting that at the, book of, at the end of the book of Acts, there's no trial mentioned. 
There's no conclusion to Paul's story mentioned. What we know about what happened, we piece together from tradition. We piece together from the uh, early church fathers, as we call them. Some of their writings talk about Paul being set free uh, after his first trial, and he ends up actually being out, I think, for about three or four more years before he gets arrested again. The first trial in front of uh, Emperor Nero was when, before Nero went insane, and so he was set free. The second trial happened much closer to the end of Nero's reign when Nero was absolutely off his rocker, and he was killed. That's according to tradition. Uh, but it, the book ends with no trial. And, and I think that there are specific reasons for that that we've talked about in our Luke class. A couple of lessons for you. One is, a couple, three. Three lessons for you because it always has to be three. So stand on the truth. It's the only thing that is really clear. Uh, and what I mean by that is, it doesn't matter if you're standing on trial. It doesn't matter if it's, it's a work situation that's come up where uh, answers need to be given about a project that didn't get finished. It doesn't matter if you're talking with your, with your spouse about uh, being questioned about your loyalty. It doesn't matter if you're talking with your children. Uh, whoever you're interacting with, always stand on truth. It's the only thing that works. You stand, and, and I was told this as a kid, and probably all of us were. If you tell the truth all the time, you never have to remember which lie to maintain. And there's a lot of truth to that. Just tell the truth. And, and not just tell your version of the truth, but tell this truth, the Bible. Let it be your guide. Let it be the thing you talk about. And things will work out better. Secondly, trust in God. He'll get you through. I can't imagine being Paul, knowing that he was, he's missing. You know, I'm imagining Paul's main complaint about life is all the opportunities he's missing. Don't you think so? Now, Paul's also finding opportunities where he's at. So that, there's that piece of it, too. But, I mean, as a whole... Paul was a driven, mission-minded man. He absolutely wanted to go to city after city after city and set up churches and teach the gospel and meet in the synagogues and then meet with the Gentiles and have Bible studies with people, if that's what you can call them back then without a Bible, and, and, and share God's truth with people and baptize those who, who need it and, and watch people have their light bulbs go off if they realize the truth. He, that's what he loved, and he's sitting in a jail cell for at least four years here. And, and the text we read tonight, four years of sitting in jail. Can't you imagine how frustrated he gets, all the missed opportunities? If he goes a day without having seen somebody, which probably happened, oh, I didn't get to teach anybody today. Now, first of all, I wish we were a little more like that. Uh, there was a man I knew named uh, Steve Coffin, and some of y'all know Steve. Uh, one of my favorite things about Steve is on his desk, actually, I'm not sure if it was on his desk. I think it might have been on his wall. Um, he had his favorite verse of the Bible, and it was Acts 2, 47. Anybody tell me what Acts 2, 47 says? It's one of those lesser-known verses. He loved the end of it where it said, 
And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And he had made it his mission that he was going to teach somebody every day. That the Lord adding day by day wouldn't happen unless somebody was out there teaching day by day. So that's what he tried to do. Could you imagine if more of us did that? And I'm, I'm stepping on my toes here. Could you imagine if more of us were so focused on kingdom things that that's what we talked about. We laid nuggets out everywhere we went to see if it would stick anywhere. We want to make every opportunity for people to pull us aside and say, hey, we want to hear a little more about that. And that could be not necessarily nuggets about the hope of Israel, I'm not sure how well that's going to go when you share that with your neighbor, but it could be more like what I said about my marriage. We just built our marriage the way the Bible says to build it. I want to hear more about that. People with struggling marriages want to hear about successful marriages. The problem is they don't know where successful marriages are because those of us who have them joke about our marriages in a way that people don't know we have them. Maybe we should be a little more serious-minded about creating opportunities about our children, about our finances, about marriage, about issues of life, and then those can roll into potential opportunities for salvation. Trust in God. God will get you through those difficult moments if we will just hold on to him. And if we got to sit in a jail cell for four years for talking about the hope of Israel, we can do it if we trust in God. Lastly, continue the work. Because honestly, in the long run, that's all that matters. I, I, I try to be careful to not go overboard. I, I've told y'all many times before, I have a habit of outrunning my headlights, as it, as it gets called sometimes. I have a habit of, of going to extremes whenever I, I want to present something and make a point. But I don't know that this is an extreme. Whether we have the best sounding worship or the worst sounding singing that has ever been offered doesn't make near as much difference as whether somebody is going to heaven or hell. Does it? And whether we have a nice building with comfortable pews and good air conditioner or whether somebody is going to have Joy in heaven will be burning in the fires of hell. One of those clearly matters more than the other. Whether we are comfortable week after week together or whether we are out there reaching people who we are uncomfortable with, that matters more. And, and I, I think we need to recognize that as a church, as individuals, we need to choose where we are going to place our focus and our energy. You only have so much. You only have so much time in a day. You only have so many opportunities. You only have so many uh, things you can do every single day. Are you using them to continue the work? I hope. Because it's really the work that matters. I hope this look at the book of Acts has been helpful. Uh, maybe 
Maybe you've, you've seen things in the book that you've not seen before. Maybe this has all been a good refresher course for you because you know all the details from the book of Acts, which either case, I'm glad. I, I'm, I'm, I hope it has been helpful. But I hope the one lesson you walk away from the book of Acts with is, is this. It's, it's not a lesson on theology. It's not a focus on uh, the, the five steps of salvation, all, uh, important stuff. It's not the, the, the pattern that was laid out for us regarding worship or, or church functions or important stuff, but the one lesson I want you to walk away from with the book of Acts is this. Never give up on the work. Don't give up on the work. Because if we give up on the work, we have lost our purpose. If we give up on reaching people with the gospel, then we are no longer what God designed us to be. I've said many times, we, we talk often, and, and I think rightly so, about the fact that we as a church are a family. Yes. Do you know what we are also? We are a training organization put together to teach Christians how to teach non-Christians how to become Christian. And if we don't do that job, we are pointless. And, and let me defend that with this. Act, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has that long, great discussion on the resurrection, Right? And it says, if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is in vain, and we are among all men most to be pitied. Y'all with me? Yes, no? I'm more making sure you're awake, okay? All right, so yes, yes, you're with me? Gotcha. All right. So if that is true, if the resurrection is not true, it causes our faith to be in vain and us to be most pitied. Okay, hold on to that. What about for someone who doesn't know the resurrection is true? Where are they at? Because I would argue they got nothing. They have nothing. And that's what God has set us up for. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about how we are ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. That's our job. And if we give up doing that job, then we are basically just neglectful employees sitting there doing nothing. I, I, I want to encourage you, as brothers and sisters, as a family that we are, that we need to be busy about the work we've been given to do, just like Paul was, like Peter was, like, like Philip was. We need to get out there and get excited about day by day he was adding to their number those who were being saved. We, we got a room full of people who love Jesus in here. Could you imagine if every single one of us went out and decided we were going to share that with the world? God can do big things with little people because the message little people have is big. 
And brothers and sisters, that can be us. And I hope we will learn that from the book of Acts. I am out of time. So we're done. Again, if we clapped in here, man, it would be a, you know, just thunderous applause. So uh, I do want to say, one of the reasons we offer an invitation at the end of every sermon is because we recognize it is important that people respond to the gospel. It is important that people have the opportunity to get their life right by becoming a child of God through baptism or just get their life straight by asking for the prayers of saints. And so I encourage you, if you, if you need either one of those things, this is a great opportunity to respond. This is a great opportunity for you to be able to set your life back on the right path. And so we offer this invitation because this invitation matters. It, it can be helpful for the one who needs it. So if you need it, please come forward and let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing this. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, Please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.